Okay, we're on. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Here we go again. Welcome to Trying to Be Kind, a podcast that tries to look at academic texts that comment on the TTRPG space, or basically academic looks at TTRPG in general. And we're back. It's been a while, friendos. It has. It yes. less a while than the, the while before the last episode. I feel refreshed. I felt that long break was necessary. Yeah, it was good. I, I think I've uh, reclaimed my my supply of indignation. <laughs> I I could not do this without a long break, I'll be honest. Oh, gosh. I mean, seriously. Well, because it's been a long break, we need to reintroduce ourselves. So today's introductory game is... Well, introductory framing survey question, rather, is... If you were to make an encounter table based on your life, what kind of polyhedral dice would you use to roll on that table? Hmm. You know, I'm a simple guy with simple thoughts and structures, and I think it's a 2d6 table for me. Two of them. Mm-hmm. It's on a bell curve. Most of my life's pretty much a seven. <laughs> Jared, you Are you saying that your life is powered by the apocalypse? <laughs> oh, it's of course 2D6. I do. It's 7 2D6. to 9. It happens with complications. <laughs> I mean, it could also be Troika. That's true. That's true. But or Traveler. Or Traveler. You know, good set, good set. How about you, Fiona? Hi, I'm Fiona May of Geist, and um, if I was doing my encounter table, it would be a D13, because that would be extremely annoying to roll, and you would probably use an automated dice roller. I don't I don't really have a good joke. I, I just think... a D13 table once. I, I like D13s. They're a cool dice. <laughs> you can also just yeah. roll a D12, and if a 13 comes up, it's a 13. Like, there's no cop there to tell you that you have to have a 13-sided polyhedral. <laughs> <laughs> Mahar, what about you? I think mine would simply be a D8. D8's a good die. A good D8. Really? I think I think because of dice discourse, too many people have started saying that the D12 has been ignored. But I think the D8 has been ignored just as much for conflict resolution. I agree. My, my first RPG was Pathfinder when I was in college. And I had, for most of that time, a cleric i played a cleric and i put a did a lot of stuff so that i could um channel holy energy or whatever through a sword so when i hit something with a sword i could also do the channel energy and channel energy is like a bunch of d8s so i had to, i went out and just like scout scrounged up a bunch of d8s and that was my thing for a while so i have, I have a soft spot for d8s that's the moral of that story i have another question honestly I, I have so this? many questions about Jared playing. Is it too pedantic? <laughs> uh, how could you? I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, not how about, about how this could one, you? Though, because my question would be actually also Jared playing a cleric. Oh yeah, yeah. Was was the cleric I, I, I to obstinacy? This is this was not the prompt for this week, but personally, of the classic like D and D classes, mm-hmm. I think I'm a cleric. I. I can't argue with that. <laughs> I don't remember uh, uh, who my who my patron saint or whatever was. 
Eris, goddess of discord. <laughs> you know, high wisdom, intelligence is largely irrelevant. <laughs> That's me. I thought dexterity would have been irrelevant in a in a dump oh, stat kind too. of sense. Yeah, just to just get rid of all the physical stats. I don't have any use for those. Oh my god, the physical stats. Oh my goodness. I'm pretty sure. I think one time Fiona and I were talking about how we could literally like know our D D stats because back in the day, uh Advanced Dungeons and Dragons actually had like if you could lift this much weight, if you could speak x languages you basically knew what your what your character class was I'm sorry what your attribute was what your ability scores would be fiona did you ever stat yourself so i can kill you in D? okay so no because i got really lazy on it and some of them don't have easy to test things right like i don't have a very good bench but like i could go to a gym and i can figure out what my bench and deadlift is and you know i i probably have a sub 10 strength like not gonna you know pretend i'm muscular i wish i could just abuse steroids and then just pretend i'm yoked forever just off of one deadlift you know (laughs) uh intelligence i'm capped at seven because i know one language i have like some smattering of knowledge about how other languages work or know some words, but like, I can't speak a second language. Um, so capped at oh, intelligence same. seven. Yeah. And you know, like the rest of it, how many retainers do I have or what is my retainer maximum is really the most thing that you could use real life from like a chart. I remember from any of the eras for like how to quantify my charisma. And I don't know how to like, if I ask people on Twitter, would How you, do you be qualify my henchman? Your yeah, like, would you What's die for me like theoretically? <laughs> like, how many people on Twitter? If it's more than three, I have more than an eighteen charisma. Oh, I don't. I don't actually think it's more than three, but like, wow. I think people would shit post oh. and claim it. Uh, you know that that in itself. Oh my gosh, sorry, friends. That in itself is a is an indicator of charisma, like the willingness to good people. Yeah, we could probably come up with a formula for converting Twitter followers into retainers. Not necessarily. One one in every thousand followers would probably die for me. That's how I feel about it. What? What? I don't think so. No, no. Oh my God. No, I don't think so. That would be. Y'all, we're trying to do a GURPS conversion (laughs) of what is charisma for ourselves, which maybe is a soft segue for once. I'm going to not be the chaos gremlin and say. Let's get into the final chapter, um, scene report. It's the final chapter. This is, I think this is the last episode we're going to do. Yes. Uh, Well, not really the final chapter. There actually is a chapter six, designs and discussions and RPG about the indie scene. But I think I have made my stance clear on this early on. I I refuse to play this game. Yeah, this is our last episode. We'll say it that way. This is the last chapter we're going to deal with directly. Tears came to my eye that this is a process that took took us something like maybe we started this October 2020. So arguably, <laughs> with, even with breaks, we, it's still been the back of our brains. So this is something that took us nine months to do. We yeah, literally spent <laughs> the equivalent of one school year on this text. <laughs> yeah, I feel like such an intellectual bimbo. I just feel yeah. like a bimbo and I'm pretty sure i feel just as good as you 
know, okay, so here's the, okay, so the sun. for the final time, for the final time, the book, Tabletop RPG Design in Theory and Practice at the Forge from 2001 through 2002, subtitled Designs and Discussions by William J. White, by published by Palgrave Macmillan. Okay, so here we go. We've done everything. We just finished this chapter on the big model. And then we go to uh, chapter five. Go read the threads, Communication at the Forge, where the chapter says it examines the communication dynamics of the Forge by first discussing the way that moderation policies, the rules governing what and how to post messages at the Forge, shape the dialogic expectations of the community. And then it goes into a very large anomaly in that context, the so-called brain damage controversy surrounding remarks that Ron Edwards made in something of a Socratic capacity. I just love Can I just um, say, I love that framing <laughs> of really? the brain damage thing that he's, he's, they're, they're making it Socratic here. Really? As, as an unbiased oh moderator. Ron Edwards... I'm sorry. I'm like, was it Socratic in the way that L. Woods went to Harvard and had a Socratic education? Um, <laughs> like, I can't. I can't. I cannot. Um, uh, in which he suggested that there were games that could damage a human capacity for storytelling. Uh, no, he was damaging. No, no. The word brain damage was used. When you, when you say brain damage happens, that doesn't well, just target storytelling. <laughs> I mean, oh god Mahar, try to be kind oh god i'm sorry this episode is gonna kill me the, the frame already it it then returns to the dialogic character of the forge by examining the genre of actual play ap threads at the forge vis-a-vis -vis actual play streams those streams did not exist at the time identifying this as a significant component of the work of the forge now i have to say on my end because I'm gonna let go of this. I could feel my, you know, I could feel the bile rising. Um, <laughs> this is this is why it's technical, uh, you know, a place of technical expertise. Yeah, because it's, again, communication good. specialist at at a professor at a professory level, right? Yep. So the huge grains of salt I'm pouring all over this. Yeah. Oh my god. This it's, is the I hope that chapter. this is played to a dissertation like, committee. Like, I, I hope that this is someday used at, like, a tenure hearing. Yeah, I think this chapter is doing, like, a... And maybe maybe y'all have a different read on it than I do, but this feels like a series of, honestly, fairly rushed, like, case studies. Well, isn't that so much of the book? Well, there's that. But like I mean, this chapter, especially, maybe it's just coming off of the theory chapter. This feels like a series. Well, of cases okay. So of I would, I would, I would, I would say that the theory chapter is the strongest chapter. Yeah. Of the book in general, um, which is ironic considering that that was like a reporting function more than anything, rather than an analysis function. Stop it. Okay, <laughs> let's do this. Okay, so... Cracks knuckles. Sorry, the so, chapter's breaking me, and the book's so close to... Look, we just have to get through okay, it. Okay, okay, so here just... we go. <laughs> All right, so this chapter starts off with a section called This Is Not the Internet, where 
basically why it talks about having an encounter on a podcast listening to a podcast with uh, someone named Clyde, Clyde Rower on the 25th episode of theory from the closet and and basically it has a conversation about how uh, the podcast host was talking about how in the matter of forums moderation authority and those things he was comparing the forge to other online forums and what they noticed was that the culture there was different obviously than the forge to quote, delicately characterizing those other forums in this way, it seems like there's uh, some tearing uh, amongst parties at those places. Clyde wondered, why is it that I go to these places and, you know, I get frustrated with these people and why are they acting in this way? And I go to the forge, I can get along there and the behavior is very, um, civil. Okay, can we just talk about, like, scholarly distance for a second? Because, like, this is where this chapter frustrates me is there's a good bit of work on the sociolinguistics of the internet, right? Like, even as casual internet users, like, people know what you kind of mean when you tell someone they're talking like a Redditor, even if, like, what you don't mean is that they're talking like a particular subreddit. Even if you, you don't mean go on Reddit. Like, yeah, like, even if you don't go on Reddit, it's like, regardless of whether you're right or wrong, you're kind of using logic as a bludgeon, and also have a very particular definition of logic in some cases. Mileage may vary. But, like, Mm. there's other heavily moderated forums of specific discussions, some of which even produce RPGs at the era, right? Like, RPGNet exists. Um, The, like, like something awful has like a pretty robust RPG discussion section, even if it's largely a complaint gallery and also has like insanely heavy moderation, given that like you're not allowed to swear on that server, they permanently ban you. And like, you know, Oh, wow. Or at least that was a thing back in the day. Um, And, you know, like there's, I mean, like more contemporary things like, chan game subculture i say shuddering but like it exists right you can arguably either look at the way that the forge managed language look at the things that came out of it and then look at another forum that managed language and look at the things that came out of it and like hold them up and you can either say this is like apples and oranges or like you can say that like these are different types of apples. And then you have like, you know, maybe some basis for doing comparative work or talking about it. But like, this just basically reads as like the moderation policies worked because people that were on the forum and still talk to me, because that seems like a lot of the sample, which is like a problem of sampling. Um, all liked the moderation there. And it's like, this is survivor bias right like this is a basic sort of bias that you would like study in like how you do methods well to be fair he does quote jason peter a relative late comer to the forge who told him i saw a lot of very good very intelligent and very thoughtful people and then i saw a strict moderator culture that made it feel like there was a murderer in our community and we need to watch everyone carefully because we've got a murderer in our community in that disconnect of these people all seem well put together, intelligent, collaborative, so why this culture? In his own participation there, Jason recalled, I asked a dumb question, which is pretty much what were the biggest problems of play at the table that you're encountering. That got shut down by Ron as not appropriate. I posted the same thing in RPG Net and got some useful answers. It was a strong moderation culture. 
I don't know if it was necessarily unnecessarily strong, rather, because I don't know the history. It felt unduly strong. So to be fair, it's not like all app, all like you know. Well, it's not all like uh, light and beauty. To be fair to it, the author, who would get really reports, go, like, like that's all it says about that, which is kind of unfortunate, like disappointing. Um, yeah, like because it spends the rest of the chapter like basically showcasing well it does it does do the brain damage thing but a large chunk of the chapter is showcasing what an excellent communicator ron was <laughs> you know well, ron said in practicalities to his conversation well how do you stop that basically how do you stop acting out you have to impose constraints you have to have the equivalence to the ones in person uh, situations and they have to not only be imposed they also have to be bought into and recognized as valuable by the majority of the people there so that one person acting out doesn't suddenly create an acting out effect in rapid succession from everybody else. I mean, okay, I get it. It's all about, like, you know, norm setting. Though, I'm just kind of like, yeah. it's done against a backdrop of World of Warcraft as a place of lack of repercussions and social responsibility. And so I'm just kind of like, okay. I don't understand, though, how it sounds toxic to me this amount of moderation and with those words in particular but that could just be me because i never encountered the forge it's a couple of pages ahead but i think this kind of is relevant and helps us move several pages where i don't think a lot happens in the interim there's a lot of stuff about like stuff but that's all going to be cut um the standards put in place in the gs discussion forum in september 2004 a little more than a year before it was permanently closed, identified a number of anti-intellectual tactics with which Ron said he had become, quote, wearingly familiar during his academic career. They needed to be avoided with great care because despite their oh-so-highbrow trappings, they represented abuse of one form or another. These included paraphrasing others without confirming the fidelity of the paraphrase, citing one's expertise in another field to validate one's argument, covertly changing one's position in the middle of an argument, and inventing novel terms in a discussion about something else. Someone who does any of the above as a routine strategy, Ron wrote, is clearly a poisonous presence in the forum. And I'm sorry, but I cannot help but hear a older faculty member being annoyed that a grad student is pointing out that they're not reading up on like, you know, any contemporary things every time I hear phrasing like that. It's the weird thing about Ron's moderation, right? Is it's about a form of argument and also about how people structure it. And it has this really, really weird idea about like rules of evidence that also are selectively applied, which maybe is what politeness is. Sorry, that was kind of a rant. No, that's an important passage there. Um, it's an interesting, like on the, just on its face, it is funny to see Ron of all people sort of put forward the invention of novel terminology as a, as a hostile thing to do, uh, you know? Uh, when we've just spent the last two weeks or two episodes dealing with a lot of honestly extremely hostile terminology well and get what gets to me later on is that he uses that he does the same things which ron says are not good and then he uses it in his own arguments later on uh let's so basically the the first section is 
all about how the Forge ultimately, as a place that was moderated well, I mean, the premises, it was moderated well, was that it created an online community. It made it viable. It was understood to have some kind of like, it operated with with so-called best practices. It would, it basically was in a way, uh, a model, a model of how an online community should operate because apparently it followed best practices as identified by a very a variety of people that um, he cites. So, I'm like, okay, sure. So this is supposedly the best practices community, and now we enter the section on brain damage. And Jared, I think you might be the one who wants to deal with this because this particular section doesn't so much trigger me as it just plunges me into a vat of irritation. Yeah, so what's going on here? The the, the story, as far as I, I know it, is that Ron... And the, the, the book presents this sort of narrative where Ron has it in his head. And this, this jibes, to be perfectly clear, this jibes with a lot of the stuff we were talking about in the previous episode, where like this idea that the forge starts from the assumption that players are somehow broken. Right. And so I think this is where this is in some ways kind of a mask off moment for Ron, where he's, he brings up and is pushed on a bit. um, This idea that he thinks that specifically vampire, the masquerade, but sort of trad games broadly have uh, through players playing them, they develop what he terms brain damage. Now, the book wants us very much to think of this as, uh, and I, this is probably like ultimately what Ron was getting at, that it's, it's the kind of brain damage that like, what he means is we, we suddenly have skewed categories for how narrative works, at least in games. And that this sort of hampers our ability to interact with other newer different games, the kinds of games that the Forge was trying to produce. Um, What's interesting to me about this section is there's this very like back and forth thing where, and and to to this chapter's credit, it tackles this head on, where Ron sort of couches it in some ways as being metaphorical, and then will double down on it being literal brain damage. Um, And we we see that pretty clearly, I think, in this chapter. And it's just, like, on the one hand, really odd, because why would you choose that language? But then on the other hand, at least to me, it's also, like, perfectly obvious that Ron feels this way. And it's strange to see it presented, like, uh, everyone uh, Dr. White interviewed seemed really taken aback that Ron would feel this way. And to me, with the hindsight of, you know, a decade of time... Uh, to reflect on this, it seems perfectly obvious that Ron would feel that way about uh, players broadly. Is that a sort of fair summary of this section? Well, I mean, the way I see it is, it's almost like you're saying that all learned behavior is brain damage. You know, because it's it's how you learned to play the game, and because this is how you because the rules matter, right? So it's it's generating these kinds of narratives. It's generating these kinds of storytelling. And because you learned it through, you know, the game, it, it basically meant that you learned wrong. So, like, I think maybe incorrect learning would be a much more generous way of, of doing things. But, I mean, 
to call it literal brain damage. And I'm just and quoting the man it literally. Here. Like that's we that I don't think that can be overstated. Ron is on the record multiple times that he means brain damage quite literally. Right? Um, like it's not a metaphor. It, it might like, also be a metaphor, but it's literal. But like at a biological level, the functionality of your brain has been like compromised. And I think that is such an audacious claim to make. Mm. So Obviously, this is like so weird. And the question is, I think, rightfully raised in this chapter, which is if you're claiming that this was the this was the forum of best practices of how an online community should work. He then goes, Dr. White, into damage control, not that he actually is trying to do some damage control. He just named the section damage control. I realize that I've been play on brain damage, which I find slightly distasteful, but whatever. But okay. So, in the context of the foregoing, the brain damage controversy presents itself as an anomaly. If Ron's goal was to create and sustain a viable social scene, and he took careful steps to achieve that goal, then his insistence on employing the term brain damage to describe the cause of some players' inability to make sense of games like Sorcerer seems insultingly dismissive of those players in a way inconsistent with the mission of the Forge. Even if we accept Ron's contention that he was merely using the term in its technical sense, he was, after all, trained in animal biology with a PhD in zoology from the University of Florida and held a teaching position as an assistant professor of biology at DePaul University of Chicago during the lifetime of the Forge. The response of his <laughs> non-disciplinary audience to insistence on the literalness of the claim must surely have given him pause. And this is where I'm just kind of like, what is going on here? I mean, didn't we just say earlier that uh, depending on someone's expertise in another field is not supposed to tell whether or not you have, um, whether you're right or wrong or not. Because animal biology is not neuroscience. It's a very different thing. Yeah. So I'm just kind of... It's so egregious. It's so egregious. I'm just kind of like, what? What? Like, seriously? That's a... mm. And like, is that the moment? Like, even if we put that to the side like the, the hypocrisy of it to the side is this the moment to build ron's ethos you know what i mean yeah exactly exactly seriously i mean i'm we're not here we are not here to relitigate ron edwards words i mean at the end of the day it happened it's been 14 years and quite frankly and the last thing so far as i know and so far as this book presents ron's last word on the brain damage issue is and i quote no retractions, no apologies. Oh yeah, it's like I don't want to like relitigate it, but like it, it's it's just so fundamentally strange how like moderation around this like is treated as surprising or like, you know, upset or like the idea that like certain rules for a server would be like enforced and like it it's it's so weird to write this sort of apologia when like i don't think like ron edwards like is in any danger of like being someone who doesn't work in rpgs to the extent that ron wants or cares to right like this really isn't like a necessary defense right like 
I mean, in some ways, it's even a way of admitting that, like, the end of the Forge might have been good because, like, Ron endlessly relitigating his own arguments doesn't work well. And I don't know, it just becomes such a frustrating cycle for the rest of this chapter. Yeah, there's a moment, there's a moment, uh, you know, sort of in the middle of this brain damage, damage control bit where Ron posits, and as apparently he did in several places, a different sort of metaphorical situation where it's, you know, I I can't remember, basically prosthetics. And on page 187, there's this bit, uh, quote, he alluded to the idea of new RPG rules as prosthetics for damaged creative capacity, saying, quote, perhaps primetime adventures, my life with master dogs in the vineyard, Polaris, et cetera, et cetera. Are all really are really the best available prosthetics for permitting the population to do X, where X could be understood as producing the components of a functional story. So this like speaks directly and really loudly, and I hate to keep harping on this, but it's kind of my soapbox. This speaks directly and very loudly to that foundational assumption um, that I keep saying the forge is built on that players are incapable of narrative right like in whatever way we might construe it and that system is the answer to that right so those two things in conjunction are in at least in my mind like the everything that the forge is built on and like here it is coming up right in the middle of this brain damage controversy and i think there's a reason for that You, you know what i mean well i mean he goes on in the next page to describe it and liken bad gaming or bad game design to a traumatizing event in people's lives and that's why it will cause them damage and i'm just i'm just wait a minute there's there's so many functions of the mind which even current neuroscience doesn't understand and for him to just you know like for me it is such an audacious claim that it needs to be investigated at the scientific level and it's not ever been investigated really at a scientific level that i'm aware of like what is the effect of bad storytelling practices specifically to you know to cognition and to the actual organ that is the brain i don't think anyone or at least off the top of my head i can't i don't even know where to start um like really ascertaining that because it's such a large like nebulous question and the I guess, inability to even admit the complexity of the question and to have it give such a simplistic answer, to me, and is it's, just it's like, such a weird what is this? Because at the end of the day, Ron is kind of like positing himself as being willing to die on this monism hill from philosophy of mind. You know what I mean? Like monism of brain and mind. And that's that's like what's at stake here for Ron, it seems. And that's why he keeps going back to no, it's literal, no, it's literal, no, it's literal, because he can't you know, he's, he's a scientist, he's a biologist. And so he's got this very like modest approach to what mind is. It's essentially like, why are we talking about, like, why is this even a thing? We're talking this about is, games. I mean, <laughs> it's so essentialist when you get down to it. it yeah. and, and what's worse, it's almost like, you know, transitivity applies as well, because you're basically saying if you're brain damaged, it means that you cannot do, I'm sorry, trigger warning for those coming in. But basically, if you have a, a neurodivergence, for example, if you have a mental illness, 
or something that's you know that neurologically wrong with you or neur- neurologically problematic to you, it then follows that you also probably can't do games properly, well, right? It, because that's that is the next logical, commonsensical thing to say. And we all know that's not true. If you look at our community, I would say like the number of people who are living with conditions right now, it's really just come on, like what? I I find that I find that to be so problematic. And why I just can't respect this particular kind of discourse. And I can't defend anyone defending a discourse that said, oh, it was, you know, it was okay. Because this is a fairly large, that's the other thing, to frame it as an anomaly. I'm like, well, your anomaly was not well moderated now, was it? Because the anomaly came from the moderator. Yeah, it's it's this, and I'm gonna say something like I'll say like mildly unkind, and I'll be very clear at what I'm saying. It's this weird authoritarianism that Ron cannot get around, and I mean he admits to it to some degree with his whole like "what if like Lenin dissolved things," where it's like this is a great man theory of history applied to communism, which is in itself kind of weird, but like yeah, dude, you have this great man thing. And yeah, you have like this inability to give up like power and control of like a narrative. And it includes this part of the narrative where Ron Edwards is very convinced in like this way that sounds silly, right? And I'm not trying to make fun of him. I'm trying to take him at his word where it's like, he thinks that like the loss of imaginative capacity happens because rules don't account for certain ways that you could try and approach a game because there's not enough narrative happening, right? And that like that's like failing to clap your hands for Tinkerbell and like literally when you don't do that, like the fairy on the TV dies and also you get like a neurological impairment in your permanent ability to imagine because like it also just believes that like in the weird nicheness of geek subcultures, which is, you know, a part of the chapter that maybe could have been more full or interesting to not devote time to this, has this sort of weird gatekeepery thing around how he sees imagination and also that like you there's just this idea that you like you can't have other interests. Like there's nothing in my life that makes me think about narrative like i i read like you know a trad module and i've like never seen an art film or like read an experimental novel or like listened to an album that like you know had a concept or like even read a think piece right like and i think that's what's like most troubling to me about like how this theory works right because it's like so absolutist that like if you do this multiple times, like you're too hideous to look at, like is the other like kind of ugly jab in it? Let's just be, let's just call a spade a spade for what it is, which is that um, for me, the problem with this chapter is to reduce something to an anomaly. Something this large to an anomaly is not at all. I think it's more structural than uh, Dr. White is willing to admit. I think that's what's essentially happening. And the chapter's reticence to even say it was a bad thing to say, like, once again, I know it's an academic text, but like, have an opinion, you know, like, at some point, we're here to make claims. And if we could make claims, you know what I mean? 
Like I want the text to have an opinion about this particular thing. And it just blatantly will not. Well, it, it does this thing where like it almost dances around it where like, there's kind of an aside where someone mentions that like, they feel like embarrassed looking back on how like casually people used a slur for the developmentally disabled. That was way more common than, you know, one that like, if you watch any movies from the eighties is like used in PG movies casually, but like, you know, where it's like, yeah, that's probably one of the things that's most missing from this book is like a sense of autumnal reflection and growth. Like, where are they now? What are they doing? What is the influence? Yeah, like I said, the last the last thing that I saw in this text from Ron on this subject, like timeline-wise, is, and I quote, no retractions, no apologies. Like, that's where we leave off with Ron on this. Yeah, and honestly, like, I think I just want to point out that who moderates the moderator when you have a failure of moderator of moderating, I would imagine that threads like this would have been shut down right away in the forge. But because Ron was the one who put it, who would shut down Ron? Who could shut down Ron? I do want to uh, just mention because I okay, so I don't want to spend really any time at all with this diagram on page one ninety of the conversation around this. Like that's I don't know whatever it's not my style but there is it it does point out something interesting that um if you look at you know they've broken it down into all the different topics that were happening happening sort of simultaneously in this big brain damage thread and the only one that i see where ron's name shows up is the topic that dr white has called don't call it brain damage which appears to be reducible to whether or not that particular label is appropriate or accurate or whatever. And so it seems like the only thing Ron really talked about uh, in relation to this particular thing himself at the time was whether or not, you know, it wasn't about whether or not the the idea was wrong. It's about the presentation of it, right? And like, I guess, defending his use of that phrase. And it's like, okay. So it wasn't even really about the claim at the end of the day, because it couldn't be. When, When you say that, you know what I mean? When you frame it as brain damage that way, it's a, you can't have a conversation. Well, I don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, it's meant to be just an anomaly that was covered in more than two-thirds of the chapter in terms of length. But I think on our end, we're not here to relitigate that. Only, I think, just to say, rather than why... I think rather than ask why Ron said it, which is the major premise of that of that thing... I think the more important thing to ask, because it's about community management, is why was he able to say that in the end? Not why did he say it, but why was he able to? I think it's telling that, you know, he's the one who closed, quote unquote, closed the post, which is to say he declared it over and did so, if I recall correctly, um, by saying that, you know, he's more than happy to take criticism from any individuals who feel individually slighted, right? Which is to cut off any discussion of the larger impact this might've had on the community, right? And so even in that moment, he got to sort of set the terms as far as, as how this gets discussed in a broader sense, which in a chapter about, specifically about moderation, you know, 
um, that seems something that uh, is important to point out. Yeah, because he he does this follow-up post, right? Like February 11, 2006, um, where he starts talking about like what storytelling is as like a neurological concept for him. And, you know, it kind of opens with... Um, in his interview with Clyde, he makes clear he is referring to games like Vampire the Masquerade, which had, quote, no coherent reward for play at all, but instead featured a mishmash of combat mechanics and character creation rules while insisting that this was going to produce not only a watchable cinematic narrative or story, which is to say an arc of rising action on a conflict and a cinematic resolution and fallout from that, not only was it going to do that, but it would be literature. And then symptoms of, like, that involve, like, essentially, you know, Jared's other running thing of like players as the problem where it's the problem is that you promised that not that like you shouldn't promise that or promising that might be a social act rather than a thing that a book does. Yeah. It's like this, it's like a turtles all the way down situation where it's like, okay, we have bad players who are broken from the point of view of the forge. And it's like, how did they get that way? Well, of course it was a game system that made them that way. Right. It's just, <laughs> it's just like this fractal situation where at no point does anyone have agency over their own life. Yeah, and I mean, when you get down to it, it's almost like the, the Forge, if you follow that, it posits, it positions itself now as like some kind of like messianic area in a way. Like we are going to save gaming because we're literally saving people from losing their minds, from break, from getting broken. Yeah, it's pretty apocalyptic. Right? It's... No, no. And you know, the, the other thing I find telling about this entire thing is, of course, based on what I can understand and who's being quoted, I once again don't see like women or people of color being asked, well, what does that actually mean? Right? Once again, it's, it's this whole, hmm, if moderation's so good, then where where was the guarantee you know where is the guarantee of like device diverse voices where is the guarantee of multiple perspectives from different walks of life from different regions of the world from multicultural discourse and this existed in 2007 okay 2007 wasn't completely blind people were already kind of woke by then so i'm just anyway moving on yeah, we, we need to be on. kind to ourselves. It then ends the chapter on actual play as a dialogic genre, where it then talks about, you know, how an actual play post was rather something that was important and how these needed to be looked at and how these interactions were necessarily reported and valued in the forge. Yeah, I think these these sort of case studies here, because there's the there's the one about that's actually, I, if I read it correctly, is Dr. White brought something to the actual play forum and had yep. an interaction with Ron. And then there's another one that's about the champion system situation and Ron diagnosing quote-unquote incoherent play. And then there's the final one that's um, Levi Cornelson, who was talking about, you know, he didn't feel like his group's play fit into the GNS model and Ron sort of diagnosing that as well. And they're all very, very, they paint Ron as a very effective and generous communicator. And beyond that. What feels weird to me is that, right, like it opens up with like, you know, how like 
actual play as a genre of writing was like a forged currency and like one that had like its own like sort of thing. And then like it follows up by like someone talking about how like all previous actual plays were actually um, post hoc performances of one stripe or another trying to recreate the dialogue-centered experience of his own playgroup, this is Malcolm Shepard, um, who's writing on LiveJournal, would be very difficult, he said. An attempt to do so would create a textual simulacrum of the real game that might be entertaining, but it is probably false to one degree or another. Additionally, my experience leads me to believe that most actual play reports are pretty divorced from the experience of the game, to the point some are fabrications, or at least tinted with a heavy dose of wishful thinking and compensations for problems with performance. And then, like, you know, kind of, like, poses this as a question, then jumps into, the answer seems to be a mix of morale building, idealism, propaganda, and community affirmation, and the pleasure of sharing a cool story in a unique format. And, man, why is the fact that morale building, idealism, propaganda, and community affirmation are all apparently equivalent things, not something that someone wants to unpack? <laughs> yeah, it's just a list so that we don't have to say the word ideology. <laughs> okay, so let's just look at the conclusion of this chapter, right? So, the highly structured moderation style of the Forge, while off-putting to some, served as the framework within which all of all sort of contributions could be made, but central to the work of the Forge was a genre of the actual play thread, which stands in contrast to the sort of abstract speculation that sparked the brain damage controversy. And for me, I'm just more like, uh, I will leave it to others to relay the academic importance of this text. When you get down to it, we're not academics in this field. So we need to like also in my opinion, not comment on, oh, well, this will blah, 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 like ruin the, the, the field. I don't know enough about the field and communications theory to say that. What I will say, though, after reading this entire book over nine months, and I guess we're getting into reflections now, is this is the kind of book that I think will just, I don't think it's the kind of book that will change minds. I think it's the kind of book that will simply uh, preach to the choir and if you've if you've already been leaning in this kind of way it'll just like confirm your bias yeah it's one of those things where like what i was hoping and this is very selfish because i'm i'm less an academic than anyone else here and certainly not in communications um and so what i was hoping for out of this book uh very selfishly was a like just a a really nice sort of packaged expression of the forge specifically honestly of forge theory that i could just point to because that's not something that really exists in the world it's very difficult actually to point someone to the forge and say oh here's the information you need um, because it's all very buried under ancient internet and also the the fucking language of the forge so i was hoping that i that it would be something at least that like i could maybe even excerpt into a forge theory primer and just hand to people so that then I could yell at them about, about it. Cause that's sort of my whole internet deal at this point, but it's, I don't think it does a very good job of that. Like it, it, it has, 
which, you know, it doesn't need to, to be clear. Again, this, this is my selfish thing. It doesn't have to do that, but I'm not sure like it has much value. I, I guess what I mean is I'm not sure it has much value to me and what I assume to be people like me who are actually like working in games right now, if that makes sense, neither as a book to guide a certain type of design work, nor as a book for understanding the lineage of the forge as a thing that we might agree with or push back on or anything like that. So I'm a little bit like disappointed. Now we could talk about it as a, as an academic text, I guess on its own merits, but I don't have the framework for that. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm not an academic in the relevant field, right? Like, my degree is in interdisciplinary philosophy, you know, like, primarily, I know about very unrelated things, um, which means realistically, no matter what, like, most of my criticisms are going to be that, like, I don't really even share frames of reference to a large point with this other than as someone that works in games where again the things that inform what i do are mostly my academic background and also personal interests and people i interact with so like on that hand like this reads most to me as a sociology of you know being a member of the forge right like this is to some degree a description of the forge by a participant who is trying to make an objective description of something that he's not willing to take a step back from because it's never analyzed in any longitudinal way against something else, which is the other thing is if you're saying it's being forgotten, what is it being forgotten by? Right? Like does, is he talking about like, you know, kind of the fact that there's like, a bunch of different schools of like indie influence design depending on which way that you think Ron means it do you mean in the sense that like people are unaware that people came from the forge do you mean that like people do not particularly use GNS theory or only use parts of it because that's to some degree what the book doesn't answer for me is you know what the forge that is being forgotten is because it's not like I didn't learn new things from reading the book, right? Like I am glad I read it. I think it was informative, even if some of the information was the author's intent, but there's still the question of like who forgot and who is doing forgetting and like specifically what from this project is most going forward because like, actual play written reports at this point just in terms of communications technology just aren't as like meaningful because like you know realistically actual play in a podcast format has won a diana jones award and like that's probably a few years behind in terms of like a number of things right which is like the impossibility of hitting a moving target yeah what a somber way to end this entire process. <laughs> yeah, it feels a little. I am a crow. Bang, I, what, what I, do you do? I exist I mean, to like, cut the thread of, of life. 
<laughs> I mean, like, as our resident mother, I'm just kind of like, and this is what we gave birth to? <laughs> Why? <laughs> Not want to speak for you, Jared, but as our maiden, if I were in your position, I would have gone like, I got fucked for this. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> that's, that's basically what I feel about well, you know, like, look, there there are merits to this book. No, it does um, a lot of things. Sort it of. It does a lot of things right. It's it's just the things that it gets wrong for me just make me not want to study the forge. You know, like I think in what think of it this way: like the the book starts off with people are forgetting the forge, and I now leave the book with now that I now that I know the forge based on this, I don't think I would have wanted to have been there. So I think that's one degree worse than getting being forgotten. Like I have a rather like mm, leery uh, opinion now. If that's if this is what you said was happening there. Well, can I um, ask the two of you, since we're done with this book, do either of you have any ideas for what we might talk about next? Ooh, actually, I don't know yet. I know Fiona has some in mind. Well, I actually have an odd thought because, you know, every death is a new beginning. Is maybe next book, just because, tell me I'm wrong, but maybe a way that would have been easier to go through this and kind of jump through would have been reading the book, breaking it into episode themes ahead of time, and then doing episodes on them because we do do a lot of retreading because, you know, things kind of have to be restated, but man, going through this book chronologically was Yeah, not I think my we probably favorite. could have gotten this book done in like three episodes. <laughs> <laughs> in retrospect, yeah, in our retrospect. methodological rigor and framework <laughs> could have been could be re examined. Yeah, hundred percent. I think I think that's a good point. This is a good opportunity to sort of uh look at how we how we approach splitting the book into episodes i did have an idea for a book that i haven't read it so i can't i, I can't i can make no promises. Yeah, I, I love the idea that we're all going in blind yeah so the the book though is called the elusive shift i think i've mentioned it to y'all at least once um but it's by john peterson who wrote that giant tome uh playing at the world i think um and i believe he's a historian so it's what I like about the idea of doing the elusive shift is it feels very like a similar project in that it's talking explicitly about a, a particular role-playing culture of the past and their theoretical commitments. Um, but it's looking at basically early D&D, like we're talking 1970 through probably the 80s. Yeah, sometime in the 80s would be the timeline we're looking at. Okay, so let's look at this. It's on Kindle! It's on Kindle! Yay! Okay, sorry. Sorry. I mean, I know that Amazon can be problematic, but I also like the idea of I don't have to kill a tree to get this book. Yeah, e-readers are nice. So, The Elusive Shift, How Role-Playing Games Forge Their Identity, Game Histories by MIT, by John Peterson as published by MIT Press. Yeah, I just Yo. think there's a nice symmetry. <laughs> I, I'm here for that. That sounds great. 
Well, oh. if we're going to do this book, how the early Dungeons & Dragons community grappled with the nature of role-playing games, theorizing a new game genre. So it sounds interesting to me. Yeah. I, I like it, and I think that like it would be one where it might be most interesting to read it and then kind of break it into themes rather than do it chapter by chapter, or at least, you know, get started and do a conversation, just because how long is it? Um, it is not playing at the world. This is, um, it's about 260 pages. Okay. 270. I'll okay, need to let's get, do this. Get a copy, I think we have an idea. Yeah. We've, we've got it. I'll um, go order a copy tonight. So on this hopeful note, we say goodbye to Dr. White's book, and we move on, hopefully, to the next. Do any of us have any personal like things we learned finishing this podcast that we want to cast forward through the abyss of death? It's very hard to be kind, but you need to keep on trying. It's the trying that's important, I think. I'm probably funnier when I'm being catty. Whatever happens, try to be kind. <laughs> okay, I'm pressing stop. Here we go.